Hello, everyone. Welcome to Sundays with Saima. This podcast is made for aspiring otolaryngologists to learn from trainees and attendings in the field. I'm your host, Saima Wase, fourth-year medical student at Northeast Ohio Medical University. Today, I have the pleasure of speaking with Dr. Akina Tamaki, Assistant Professor and Associate Program Director of Otolaryngology, Head and Neck Surgery at Case Western Reserve Hospital, University Hospitals. She earned her medical degree from the University of Maryland. She then went on to complete her residency at University Hospitals, or Case Western, followed by a fellowship in head and neck oncologic surgery at the Ohio State University Wexner Medical Center. Dr. Tamaki, thank you for joining me today. I'm thrilled to have you here. Thank you so much, Simon. I appreciate it. That was a nice intro, too. (laughs) (laughs) Absolutely. So to start out, can you tell me a little bit about your path to otolaryngology and what brought you to the field? Sure, absolutely. So I'm originally from the Bethesda, Maryland area, which a lot of people might know that the NIH is located there. Mm -hmm. So I think my love for the sciences kind of came from my experience at the NIH. So I knew that I always wanted to do something in the sciences. And then I ended up doing my undergrad at Hopkins and then um, naturally kind of was thinking research versus patient care. And at the end of the day, I think that it was the passion for taking care of patients that led Mm -hmm. me to medicine. And then from there, um, I rotated, did my rotations. I was very undecided, even (laughs) as a third year medical student, I was between like so many different sort of specialties. And I decided on ENT very, very late. I think I was a fourth year medical student and I essentially scrambled to find some away rotations, but just um, seeing the type of surgeries that we do, especially the cancer surgeries, Mm -hmm. it was just incredibly fascinating and something that I was like, absolutely, this is what I want to be doing. And then naturally, um, went into residency and I never lost my passion for taking care of cancer patients, which naturally led me to going into head and neck fellowship, which is, you know, I absolutely love. And I think it's the coolest field out there, even within the subspecialties at ENT. It's, it's right. amazing. Yeah, that's a great story. And it's nice to know that you can go into the field later. And you said that you had an interest in oncology specifically. What in the aspect of patient care drew you towards that? Sure, so in terms of cancer care, I think that cancer is of course devastating at wherever it happens, whether it be the head and neck or anywhere. So the type of connection and commitment that you feel for your patients and the um, amount, tremendous amount of what the patients are are gaining from you, I think is huge in the, in the field of oncology. And mm-hmm. I love the longevity of the patient interaction as well in cancer. So these patients belong to you and you belong to them as well, which I think is one of the most wonderful things about um, my specific subspecialty of ENT. Right. I specifically remember a case in your clinic, actually, when I was on my AI, where we went from diagnosis um, all the way to potential steps for treatment in one afternoon, which I thought was really incredible and unique to the field of oncologic surgery. Um, What struggles do you face in kind of imparting that knowledge when the diagnosis can be so foreign to patients? Yeah, absolutely. I think that there definitely is a a way of presenting information. I think interestingly in head and neck, 
we are in a little bit of um, I wouldn't say necessarily an advantage, but of course, the cancers that we deal with a lot of time happen with smoking and drinking. So mm -hmm. not saying that these people deserve to have cancer in any way, but sometimes the conversation is a little bit easier because it's no surprise that drinking and smoking can cause head and neck cancers. So sometimes I, I find that I have the very um, like working class patients who I absolutely love, who are very much like, okay, what is the diagnosis? This is what I need to do. And then, you know, how do we fix this? And I, mm -hmm. I, I love that because they're very, you know, direct and easy to work with. And I feel like we're very much on the same page. Mm -hmm. That being said, like, I think um, some of the patients that we even saw, some of them are younger and they are not smokers and drinkers. And they're, they have this devastating diagnosis of a, a tongue cancer that people missed because nobody thought that it would happen in somebody so young, et cetera. So that conversation, and it all can be very, very delicate. And really, I think the most important thing is that you, you spend the time that they need to, to understand what's going on. And then mm -hmm. I personally like to bring people back for multiple visits. If, for instance, I have a diagnosis and I'm almost certain that this is cancer, I'll still bring them back in a week or two, just so that it has a little bit of time to, to set in. I'll tell them, you know, bring your family members next time mm -hmm. and have this conversation. So, you know, it's, it's definitely takes a little bit of, um, kind of that's uh, that uh personalization as well is trying to present this like news that's going to be quite devastating sure sure and being empathic throughout that entire process is super important as i imagine and i honestly haven't seen someone who spends so much time with their patients and smiles with them you know shares their sorrows so i learned a lot from that experience with you i'm glad yeah. you being with me in clinic of course <laughs> Um, so in terms of other aspects of your career, you were recently appointed the associate program director, and I saw that uh, one of your most recent articles in the Laryngoscope discussed the night float system in otolaryngo otolaryngology residency. Can you talk about some of the resident perceptions and impacts that that had on your program? Absolutely. So that was a project that I was part of when I was even a resident. So we, so I think I was a second year when we transitioned from what we call a home call system versus a night float system. And it's it's an interesting thing, especially for those people who are listening who might be going into residency, because I think it's something that you would want to get an idea of what their call system is like. So essentially the, the home call system was you, there would be a resident who was changing every single day who would be on call and they would essentially have a whole day of work and then they would be on home call. However, mm -hmm. when you go to a busy program like at Case Western and University Hospitals, like you are there all the time. Mm -hmm. So even though you're home call, you really are not home. And then you're expected to work a full day the following day, um, unless like somebody recognizes that you were up all night taking care of patients, et cetera. So we transitioned to a system where we have a night float. So you have a designated person who's on a rotation. So there's just so much more consistency in your hours as well as expectations. I think that um, um, it's, it's just a much, much nicer way to approach it, especially if you're going to a busy program where like realistically home call is not 
maybe the best way to go just because of the reality of you're going to be a, you're going to be here all night. And then one of the things we looked at in that particular paper was there's some criticism of, you know, how are, are we impacting case volume when we do mm-hmm. that? Because now people are, are on rotation. Again, the surgical volume might be a little bit lighter because you're on at night. So you're only taking care of those cases that come in at night, but does it impact their case logs? And we found in that paper that it does not at all, because if you think about it, all these residents were very tired, but maybe they were somewhat doing cases. But of course, like how much do you really learn when you've been up for 30 hours before that? Mm -hmm. And overall, I think it's been like by far exceedingly positive in terms of our residency, in terms of um, quality of life and, and resident happiness and duty hours. It's been, it's been a huge, huge positive. And, Mm -hmm. you know, I hope that more programs actually adopt the system because it's worked out wonderfully for our program. Sure. And with the night float, I've heard that there's some discomfort with it being one person on that night float. It can feel lonely. Do you have any um, tips or uh, advice for people going through that right now? Yeah, no, absolutely. And that's something that I even went through when I was on rotation. I was like, oh, it's it's just me. Like, first of all, there's a pressure of, okay, I'm the only person in-house. However, you are never alone. So we always have a senior resident on backup. And then there's always a attending on backup in addition to that. So if there's anything that comes in, like we are always available and there's really a constant communication of like, honestly, any patient that you might have questions about. Mm -hmm. And then of course, like on the floor, of course, you might not be in a huge team of residents, but of course you have the, in in our facility, you have dedicated nurses who you're going to be working with essentially all night and um, you will end up being pretty busy. So it's a great, great learning experience. And usually the rotations happen during our PGY two years. So Mm -hmm. it's definitely like a great inauguration into like, okay, this is ENT. This is where really where you get to spread your wings and, and, you know, you're, you're the doctor, like you are here, you're going to be taking care of these patients. (laughs) Well, that's uh, interesting for medical students as well. um, Looking at the different aspects of different programs and thinking about night floats and uh, the Q3 calls that some programs have as well. So in addition to that, do you have any advice for medical students who are in the early stages of training or even closer to applying uh, into the field of otolaryngology? Sure. So I think in terms of the conversation that I have with MS1s and 2s, so at that point, you know, when I was a medical student, first and second year, I had no idea what ENT was. <laughs> like, I did not even know what the specialty was. I don't have any family members in medicine. So it was just like, you know, I didn't know what it was until I was a third year. So I think at that stage of the game, like keep an open mind, um, explore every specialty you might be interested in. Mm-hmm. Um, the advice that I do like to give people who might be interested, maybe an ENT or any of the the pretty competitive subspecialty is, is essentially to prepare, like you're going to go to the most competitive subspecialty. And then let's say you decide you don't want to do ENT and you decide to do something else. At least you're not going to be at um, a disadvantage because perhaps you didn't tailor your research interests or um, your academics to target into like pretty competitive specialties. And then in terms of the more senior Um, MS3s and 4s, you know, at that point, you are thinking about doing aways and things like that. So just ask your mentors, if you're lucky enough to have mentors within ENT, like, where would you do your AIs? Like, who should I talk to? What kind of research projects could I potentially be, be 
participating in. I think those types of conversation are going to be very important and also very, um, I think it needs to be very individual as well. That advice is going to be very different based on the person you're talking to. Sure, sure. And with um, the change in the step score going from pass fail, do you anticipate any changes in the application process? So I think that it is a process that we are still trying to figure out. And, you know, it's kind of right now, it's kind of like we we don't quite know how it's going to impact <laughs> us. In a, a huge positive is that I think that sometimes people are discouraged because they don't have that like stellar step one score. Like they can't go into the competitive, ultra competitive surgical subspecialties. But I think maybe we lose some really wonderful applicants because maybe they're not the best test takers, but they're they would be stellar residents. So I think that is a positive. Um, I think the reality is I believe that step two is probably still going to have a score. Mm -hmm. So I think what's probably going to end up happening is that people just take step two a little bit earlier. Um, And, you know, we, even myself, I took step two, you know, at a certain time because it's either included in your application or not included in the application. Um, And then other things I think will be more important. So whether that be research or community service, or honestly, when I look at an application, I'm just trying to see like, is this person dedicated to something and can they start and finish something, whether that be research or they're really active in their community or they're really active in their medical school. Like, I think that's all we, we want to see like dedication to something. Okay. That's good to know um, from the medical student perspective as well, knowing that as long as you do what you're passionate about and start and finish, that's the main goal. Okay. Good to know. (laughs) Thank you, Dr. Tamaki. Um, Any final thoughts for today? No, I think that's mostly everything. And for all the people who are applying soon or applying like now or already submitted the application, I wish all of you guys the best of luck. Um, Please come and take a look at our program. I think we have a super wonderful, awesome program that whomever will come here will get very good training as somebody who also trained here. So um, yeah, thank you for your time. I appreciate it. And I look forward to seeing you and uh, maybe some of the listeners and the interview trail. Hopefully we hope to be there as well. (laughs) Thank you so much, Dr. Tamaki. Uh, This has been a great episode of Sundays with Saima. Catch us next Sunday for another episode.